face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll out open with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That is, first King, or that is Revelations chapter 10. I'd like to pray before the sermon, and I'd like you to pray with me. God, I pray this morning that we would make peace with you. Oftentimes, God, you reveal your will to us, and we don't like it, and we have our own will. And then ensues a struggle where we try and justify and rationalize our will over your will. So God, I pray that we would see you on your throne this morning, all-powerful, all-glorious, in your majesty in your righteousness, in your rightness, and in your um, justness. Father, that we would surrender and kneel before your throne, and we would submit to your will. And God, we would see you glorified, and we would say in our hearts, bless the Lord. God, as we hear the sermon from your word, I pray you'd open our ears and open our minds and open our hearts. I pray that you'd give us understanding, that you would help us to pay attention to your word, and I pray that you would bless in the preaching of your word. Father, it is a blessing that we get to hear your word preached in public. And I pray that you would secure that right and that freedom for us going forward as our, as our culture seeks to uh, shut you up and to get rid of your morality and your word and your law. So, Father, I pray that you would just pour out your blessing on the preaching and the hearing of God's word this morning, that you would allow it to be preached with confidence and with calm and with peace with joy, and that we would be receiving it, God, with joy, and that you would bless us with surrender in our hearts. We ask this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, today has been one of those days where I felt like turning around at the Orange Bridge and uh, heading down to Victoria. 
I hope that Pastor Barry would push me out of the pulpit this morning and take over, and I was uh, slightly hoping that Chris would continue to just uh, keep speaking wisdom and truth to us, and I could just slink out the back and head away. Uh, some texts uh, are harder than other ones. Some texts are more difficult to wrestle with than, than other ones. And for some reason, I have um, wrestled a lot with Revelation 10 and uh, really don't know if I have a handle on it like I would like to have on it. But um, nonetheless, here we are. Uh, if you're uh, just joining us for the first time uh, this Sunday, we are working our way through the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And it is a, a book that God has uh, given to the church to help us as we walk through this world, as we live in these last days, the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And it is a book that is meant for our encouragement. It is a book that is meant to sustain us as we face difficult times and trying times, and even as we face suffering, and some of us maybe even martyrdom for our faith. It helps us put all of that into context because this is a book that gives us heaven's perspective of earth. And we need heaven's perspective on earth because earth is a terrible perspective. And, uh, and so this is a book that helps us see that. When we come to Revelation chapter 10, uh, I, I'm wondering on the wisdom of having preached the seven trumpets in a row. Uh, because Revelation 10 and 11 comes between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And there's a reason in the text that that, uh, that is that way. Um, and uh, nonetheless, we did it the way we did, and so uh, we'll, we'll uh, handle it um, as we have it this morning. Uh, Revelation 10 and 11 is a uh, portion of Scripture which is not to be taken chronologically. In other words, it doesn't follow from the sixth trumpet. Rather, Revelation 10 and 11 is like Revelation 7 in that it gives us a different perspective. It gives us a perspective of the church as it's in the middle of the last days. We've been looking at the seals and the bowls, and the, or the trumpets, and those describe God's judgments upon the earth, earth dwellers, those who reject the Lamb, those who reject God, those who live in idolatry. And we wonder, well, what's going on with the church? What's happening with the church? Well, chapter 7 and chapter 10 and 11 give us a picture of what is going on in the church. And it's a reminder that God can care for the church. They're both interludes, those three chapters, 7, 10, and 11, remind us that God is able to keep us safe and to protect us and to preserve us. And I want us to just take a couple minutes and uh, I'm going to uh, try and put uh, Revelation um, 10 and uh, its setting in the book of uh, the whole or the greater book. As I've already indicated, uh, Revelation chapter 7 is a specific interlude. It comes between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, which are judgments of God. And it's an interlude which asks the question, in the midst of God's judgment upon the earth, who can stand? And the clear answer to that question, who can stand, at the end of chapter 6 is chapter 7. God's sealed ones can stand. And so Revelation chapter 7 takes us through a, a vision of the church. It is first seen from God's perspective as a perfect number, 144,000. It is then seen from John's perspective as he turns and he sees this great number, this great multitude, which nobody can describe. And then at the end of the chapter, it's described from heaven's perspective as the church continues on into eternity. And so the clear message of Revelation chapter 7 is that God can protect, God can secure, God can preserve 
his people, his church, in the midst of this world in these last days. We come to chapter 11 and, or 10 and 11, and the same thing is being looked at, the, the role of the church in the world. If you were here last week, you were here in such a difficult um, portion of Scripture as we looked at the trumpet judgments as God pours out his judgments on basically a third of the world and a third of mankind. And we wonder again, well, what's the state of the church? Well, chapter 10, we get a renewed vision of the task of John in a, a peculiar way which picks up uh, Revelation chapter 5 and again Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 and it is a reminder again of John's mission which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he is to declare the mystery of God once again. Uh, uh, again it says uh, at the end it says that he's to proclaim this again to many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. And so it's a reminder that this revelation that we've received from God um, through, the, through Christ, through the angel, to John, to us, is about the gospel to the nations. We come to Revelation 11, and it specifically will zero in on the task of the church. What is the church to do in the midst of these last days when God's judgments are being poured out on the earth? The church is to bear witness of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. As we realized at the end of last week, at the end of uh, uh, um, the, the trumpet judgments, that the earth would not repent. And that is so true. Judgment alone cannot bring about repentance. But the mercy of God and the good news of heaven is that God, in the midst of judgment, sends his people out, protected and secured, with the gospel to proclaim the good news of salvation, out of which many multitudes will respond and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's why in these last days, we see people turning to the Lord. And I believe, as we'll look at at the end of chapter 11, we will see this incredible ingathering as we come to the end of these last days. And so how do we get to where we are in chapter 10? I think it's important that we understand that God's hand is upon his church. And that God's hand has been clearly evident as we even started in the book of Revelation Clearly, God cares for his church and loves his church because he has spoken to them. He has given them a revelation of Christ which will give them an understanding of the things which are soon to take place. He wants us to know what life will be like in this world in which we live these last days. He speaks to the church then. He, he also demonstrates his love for the church through his son, Jesus Christ. Who he, we are told that he loves the church and he has given his life for the church, redeeming it by his blood. We gather around the Lord's table on a regular basis and we remember the internal covenant that has been secured for us through the blood of Jesus. We are safe and secure because Jesus Christ has died for us. We come to uh, the, the end part of Revelation chapter 1 and we have a picture, a vision of the exalted risen Christ. And we realize there that death has no power over us. We have seen it evidenced in the life of Jesus that God raised him from the dead. We know that Christ has the keys to Hades and to death. And so Christ can sustain us and raise us up from the dead. We find in Revelation chapter 1 also that his son is the ruler over the nations of the world and he guides and controls and directs every event and every act that is ever uh, administered by any ruler in this world. 
We also see God's love for the church and his care for the church uh, demonstrated in uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. Where there we're reminded that Christ is in the midst of the lampstands, which are the churches. It's a picture of Christ, the exalted Christ, still walking amongst us, still helping us, still guiding us, still directing us. And as you look at those churches, and I won't mention them all, but every one of them, Christ has an intimate knowledge of them. He says, I know your works. He says, I know your tribulation. He says, I know where you dwell. He has this intimate knowledge of us. He can keep us safe because he knows what's going on around us. And at the end of every one of those messages, there's this promise of Christ to us that those who conquer, we will give or we will be given a certain gift or a certain characteristic that comes to us from Christ and Christ alone. So we go through Revelation 2 and 3 and we find that God can secure and God can keep us safe. We come to Revelation chapter 5 and as we get into Revelation chapter 5, we see that God is on the throne room of the universe. Uh, this throne image is such a critical image for us to have in mind. And if that our Father sits on the throne of the universe, we can know that we are safe and secure in his hands. And that nothing and no one can snatch us out of his hands. And then we come to Revelation chapter 5, and we realize in Revelation chapter 5 that God has a plan. It's not just a vague plan, it's not just a general plan, but it is a, a detailed moment-by-moment -moment plan of your life, my life, of the lives of everyone in the world, of the governments of everyone in the world, of this whole universe. God has a plan and is guiding this world, is guiding our lives, is guiding this universe to a conclusion that he has designed and perfected. And it gives us great courage to know that in the midst of that plan stands the church that God cares for. We understand as we move into the, the judgments then that, that God also there hears the prayers of his people. That as a church, we don't just speak into midair and nothing happens, but clearly the judgments that God sends are in part a response to his people, his, his response to their prayer, how long, O Lord, until you avenge the suffering against us? It also demonstrates to us that God will judge evil. And that God will judge idolatry as he pours out his wrath upon sinners. We also see in those texts that as God is pouring out his wrath, as I've already mentioned, that God seals the believers. He secures them. They are spiritually his forever. While the wrath of the evil one may fall upon us and we might suffer and some might lose our lives, we will never experience the wrath of God. We are safe and secure forever. And God says before these judgments are poured out, seal those. Before the, the, the trumpets are sounded, make sure that they, you do not harm those who are sealed by God. And so we're reminded that God can seek, keep his, his people safe and secure. So Revelation chapter 10 comes in the midst of all of this. And it's a reminder again as it picks up chapter 5 and it picks up chapter 1. That yes, indeed, God can keep his people safe in his plan. As we come to Revelation chapter 10 itself, it's a book full of a lot of images and a lot of pictures. And and I almost want to throw away my notes and just wing it, but then I'll really be in trouble if I do that. But I think it begins, or I don't think it begins, it's pretty clear that it begins with a mighty angel coming down from heaven. 
It's very similar to the mighty angel that we find in Revelation chapter 5. The mighty angel that proclaims with a loud voice in chapter 5. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So here again we have another mighty angel. And this angel is described in incredible terms. He's wrapped in a cloud. That's an image of the divine presence as a cloud covers God as Christ will come in the clouds. He has a rainbow over his head. A rainbow is also descriptive of the presence of God and the promise of God. Before the throne room scene, we see a rainbow that is before the throne. His face was like the sun. That's a, that's a reference to, to Christ in, the, uh, in Revelation chapter 1 where his face shone like the sun. We also see a reference to his legs which are pillars of fire. Again, that's a reference to Christ whose legs are described as like bronze. It leads some to suggest that this is Christ. I don't think it is. I don't think it is Christ or God. Rather, it is an angel who reflects the glory of God, who reflects the majesty of God, who is sent out with the power of God. Not unlike Moses who came from the presence of God and because he was in the presence of God, he had to cover his face because he shone with glory. And so there's this sense that this angel comes from the presence of God, representing God, and has a message to deliver to John. He's a finite being, but he's powerful. He's a superhuman servant of God, so to speak. He does God's bidding, as all the angels, the good angels do. They do God's bidding, and even as we saw last week, the evil angels do God's bidding. I don't think there's any more reason to see this strong angel here described in Revelation 10 as a divine being any more than there's evidence that the divine or the angel in Revelation 5 is the son of God. What's this mighty angel doing? It says he comes and he has an open scroll in his hand. So I'm coming down out of heaven and he had a little scroll open in his hand. Doesn't that resonate with you? Does that ring some bells for you? Where have we heard of an open or a scroll before? Well, back in Revelation chapter 5. Where there on the throne of heaven, God sits and the angel says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. For a number of reasons, I believe this is the same scroll. The scroll that we have in Revelation chapter 10 is the same scroll that is in Revelation chapter 5, except there's a difference. The scroll in Revelation 10 is now open. The seals have been removed from that scroll. That's what Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 to 8 verses 1 have been describing to us as Christ one by one removes the seals that were on the scroll, opening it up. And so now as John receives this scroll, I believe it's just a reaffirmation of the plan of God, of the, 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 the details that God has given. It is now opened up and given to John, and John will now declare that to the people. And the declaration of that open scroll is Revelation chapter 11 to the end of the book, I believe. And so John is given this open scroll now, the same scroll that was revealed in chapter 5. And you might notice here that it's following the, 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 the trail or the chain of revelation that's described in Revelation chapter 1. 
It's all connected, you see, loved ones. It says in, ch in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. And so God gave Jesus Christ this revelation, the scroll which Christ took in chapter 5 to show the servants the things which must, must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending his angel to his servant. So here this mighty angel now comes with this open scroll to John. And then Revelation chapter 1 says, And John is to bear witness of the word and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. And so as Revelation chapter 10 ends, John now bears witness he says, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And so this is that process of revelation described. This is the scroll of Revelation 5 being now opened up and given to John to reveal to us about what will take place in the last days and how this world will culminate in the blowing of the seventh trumpet. An amazing thing happens here in this handing over of this scroll. The angel calls out in a loud voice like a roaring lion again a reference back to chapter 5 he, when he called out the seven thunders sounded and when the seven thunders had sounded I was about to write but I heard a voice from saying or heard a voice from heaven saying seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down what's going on here some people want to argue that because John is told to seal it up and, and to not write it down, that God cancels these judgments. But it clearly says they have sounded. And after they had sounded, John obviously saw them, he understood them, and he was about to write them down. But God said, no. We don't know what the seven thunders were, and it's silly for us to try and speculate what manner of judgment they are, but these seven thunders are also being proclaimed in this world in which we live now in these last days. But for whatever reason, the purpose of God is not for us to know those. And as Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29 describes for us the secret wisdom of God, and there it says there are secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are some things that God keeps to himself. There are some things that God doesn't see fit to open up to us. And the seven thunders are one of those things. It's not unlike Paul. You remember in um, Corinthians chapter 12 how Paul is taken up into the third heaven. And he sees things of just in, in, indescribable or incredible glory. But God gives him a thorn in the flesh so that he will not speak of those things that he has seen. And so that's the same thing that's happening here with these seven thunders. It's enough for us to know that God is in control. It's enough for us to know that these thunders sound. It's not for us to know what is contained in them. And this angel, as he's uh, doing this, he pronounces or he raises his hand. He's standing on the, the sea and on the land, and we'll come back to that in a couple moments. But as he's standing with one foot on the sea and another foot on the land, he raises his right hand, which is very similar to the angel in uh, or Daniel chapter 12, who also raised his hand and swore an oath in heaven. And it's an oath that he makes that there will no longer be an interval of time. But in the days of the sound of the seventh angel, when he blows his trumpet, then the hidden plan of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
This is an affirmation that as these uh, judgments have been poured out and are being poured out on the world, there is an end coming. There is a finality to them that they will not go on and on forever, that God has a time in which he will say enough. And that time is when the seventh trumpet blows. And we looked at that seventh trumpet last week, and that seventh trumpet is when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God, and he reigns forever and ever. It is the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, God's hidden plan will be completed. That all that is contained in the scroll will have been fulfilled, and will have come to pass. It's a way of describing for us that the first days, no less than the last days, are in God's hand and there shall be no delay. I believe that the time that this was pronounced was at the, 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 the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, that at that po- moment, events were set in motion that made sure and certain that the second coming of Christ would be secure. And so this angel makes uh, an oath to heaven and earth. He swears by God who is eternal. He swears by God who has created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He can swear by nobody else, nobody greater. And these things certainly come to pass. And then there's this strange thing that takes place in verse 8. He says, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go and Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. This isn't the first time that a prophet of God has been commanded to eat the word of God. Back in Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3, there Ezekiel is told to do the same thing. He is to ingest the prophecies of God. He is to absorb or take in the word of God. To eat it is a description of absorbing or taking it or making it your own. And Ezekiel absorbed the word of God, which was judgment against the people of Israel. Here, John absorbs the word of God or takes it into himself so that then he can prophesy about the coming judgments and about God's hand upon his people. He's to prophesy, tell the nations what God is up to. Tell them about the kingdom of God. Tell them about the wisdom of God. Tell them about the sovereignty of God. Tell them about the gospel of God. Tell them about the testimony of Jesus Christ. But there's a bitterness to that. And the bitterness is that some will reject and there will become judgment upon them. There's a bitterness that in proclaiming the gospel, there is punishment that the prophet will endure. And as we find in chapter 11, so we too will endure. There's suffering and even some will die for the sake of their prophecy. That is bitterness. But there's a sweetness as well. The sweetness is that the church will be triumphant. The sweetness is that God's word will be yes and amen. The sweetness is that the word of God will go forth. The gospel will go forth into all the world. As John says, it will go to peoples and nations and languages and kings. And as the end of chapter 11 says, many people will respond and come into the kingdom of God. Isn't there a sweetness about the gospel? Isn't there a joy in the midst of the bitterness of the gospel? 
And so John here is reaffirmed in his prophetic ministry to take the word of God to the people of the earth and to the church and to make known what God is going to do in the world in which he lives. And so chapter 10 is a reaffirmation again that God is in control. That God has a plan. That he puts that plan into the hands of, uh, uh, of prophets and as we will see next week in the hands of men and women. And then finally as we come and look at it from a different point of view. There's images or there's reminders all throughout chapter 10 of the sovereignty of God. We talk about this a lot uh, here at the church, and I, I don't think you can turn anywhere in Scripture, as we will soon see, where the sovereignty of God is not overwhelming. It's on every page of Scripture. And we see it here, where, where in the seven thunders that are sealed up, God is in control of the judgments. It's not up to us to know what's going on. We don't need all the details. It's enough for us to know that God is in control. Three times in Revelation chapter 10, we are told that this mighty angel is standing with one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea. That's a stance of power and dominion. That's a way of saying that heaven rules earth. We will see a little bit later that the beast comes out of the earth and the false prophet comes out of the sea. But the heaven has dominion over the earth and the sea. It's a way of again expressing to us the sovereignty of God over all things. And even the oath that the angel makes, what does he appeal to? He appeals to the eternal nature of God. He appeals to the fact that God was here when this world began. God created this world and everything in it. If God created it, he governs it, he guides it, he directs it, he controls it. The scroll, again, is a reminder to us that God knows every single detail of how this world and our lives will unfold. There is nothing that is outside of the sovereign will and plan of God. Revelation 10 reminds us that even in the midst of judgment, the gospel will be proclaimed again through his prophet and then in chapter 11 through his servants, the church. Bit by bit, the, bit, the mystery of God is revealed to mankind. So the sovereignty of God is everywhere on the pages of chapter 10. I want to just broaden out and for a few moments just read. Read scripture. It might be tedious. Um, I hope it's not tedious, but I want us to close within our hearts and our minds having this image of God who is sovereign over all things. This is just a smattering of God's sovereignty over nature, God's sovereignty over people, God's sovereignty over uh, decisions that people make. Psalm 147, verse 8, the psalmist begins, God covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command on the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Have you ever thought of that? 
when you've looked at a picture of the world from space and it's just hanging there? It's God who holds it in place. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job writes in another place, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things we cannot comprehend, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. From its chambers comes the whirlwind and the cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for his love, he causes it to happen. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Many are the plans in the, mind, in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The Bible speaks to people. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and heal. There is no one that can deliver out of my hand. The psalmist says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Paul writes, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Daniel writes, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The psalmist writes, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And a few more verses about God's control over our thoughts and our actions. God spoke to Abimelech who had taken Abraham's wife because Abraham had lied. And God said to him in a dream, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. 
Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Ezra chapter 1.1 describes the incredible way of God in a pagan king who uses this pagan king and puts thoughts into his mind for the good of his people. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Can you trust God? No matter what the state of the world that we live in, no matter what the circumstances of life, the perspective of heaven and the perspective of the word of God is a resounding yes, you can trust him. For God will preserve his people. God has secured his children. God, God who was there at the beginning of all things will be there at the end of all things. Yes, God is able to keep his people safe. And in the days in which we live, these last days in the midst of this world, it is our privilege and our challenge to trust God and to live faithfully in such a time of turmoil, of breakdown and distress, and to hold fast the word of God and the testimony of Jesus so that people might come to know our King and our Savior. As Jesus said, to his disciples, he says to us, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Father, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for the way that we are reminded from heaven's perspective that you are in control of all things, that you have a plan, and that your plan in heaven is being worked out on earth through people like us, through prophets like John. And I pray in the midst of the turmoil of the world in which we live, Father, that we will not get bogged down or discouraged by the difficulties and the disasters and the destruction that we see all around us, but that we'll be reminded of you and your way and your word and your scroll. And we will understand that you have sealed us, you have secured us, you have set us apart, you will preserve us. You have entered into an eternal covenant with us through the blood of Jesus Christ. You will never, ever let us go. Continue to encourage us, I pray, this week. In Jesus' name, amen.